0: I'm going to talk with you this morning, as you see, about the subject of thinking rightly about God. I was going to call it the transcendence and eminence of God. I thought that might not be quite as helpful a title, big words like that. But it's it's what we're going to talk about this morning, a talk about the nature of God. It is, uh, culture changes. Our society has changed a lot in different ways. I've been preaching like this publicly uh, for over 45 years. And to some of you, that's a couple of lifetimes. Others uh, is, you know, not that long. But it is uh, fairly long. I don't, not that many more years left to do this, probably just by the nature of things. So one day you're going to be here. I'm going to do, do a kind of a funny little wobble and fall over here on the floor, and that'll be the end of that. So that's what, probably what's going to happen. But in that time, I've seen changes and subtle changes in the way people think. Years ago, when I was a young man, it it became kind of common, as as most of these things are, they are reactions against something else that's going on. And most of these things are reactions to other things that are going on. And so human beings uh, just kind of go from here to there. In the book of Revelation, as I mentioned before, uh, you see these images of different things there's an image in the book of Revelation of the sea, the ocean. And and the ocean there seems to represent human society. Because every time you're on the ocean, it looks different than it did the last time. It's constant motion and turmoil. Sometimes it's calmer, sometimes it's rougher. You can go to the exact same spot according to, well, I'll date myself, according to your Loran or a chart. Today you're using, you know, GPS, and you can go to the same spot on the ocean, and it doesn't look the same at all. That's because human society is like that. But years ago, in reaction to the formalism of religion, uh, people my age and maybe a little older began to go the other way, and they began to push churches to give prayers to Daddy-O in heaven. You know, hey, Daddy-O, you know, you're pretty cool. We love you, blah, blah, blah. And this is how they approached their worship. They brought God down on a common level to their other hippie friends. And this was the push in religion for a generation or two to make God common, as it were. Now, we might be seeing a little bit more of a reaction against some of that in our lifetime. Maybe it's gone back the other way. And you see this in various religious traditions and teachings. Some God is very accessible. He's very ordinary. Some God is very distant and far away. You have to go through all kind of rituals and incantations to get to God, to understand him. And this is kind of the way it is. But some of this is just simply attention as to what the nature of God is. What is God's nature? Well, the Bible tells us about that. Here's an interesting verse from the book of Isaiah um, in chapter uh, 55. Well, go back a little bit. In chapter 55, he says this in verse 6, Seek the Lord, or seek Jehovah, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now in this passage here, you have these two aspects of God's nature. Displayed before us, this one is what we might call the imminence. eminence is a fancy word that means nearness, closeness. And so, when theologians talk about this characteristic of God, they often use this word imminence—that uh, is, close. And so, call upon the Lord while He's near. Other passages talk about him being very near, but maybe your sins have separated. The arm of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot hear, Isaiah says, nor his ear that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God, meaning God's very near to you. And then the other verse down here at the bottom says, though, on the other, other hand, it speaks about the transcendence of God. I've got so many things going on here somehow, even though it's supposed to. Oh, I see the spinning beach ball of death. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be so much fun. And I told him in Bible class, I, I wanted to apologize because I had such a bad week last week. Everything was poor quality, poor, 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 poor. And I was so ashamed when I got home. And so I was going to just going to do better this week, you know, and so here we are. (laughs) This is how this works out. But uh, the, the verse nine illustrates the transcendence of God. That's a fancy word. It means he's distant, far away, transcendent, not like us at all. And God tells them that very clearly. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Other passages are very clear about this. You think that I'm like you, but I'm not like you. And so we make up these. And people have always done this. This is what the pagan gods are all about. They were images of people turned into gods. Great men became gods. And their gods acted like people did. They were very immature, whimsical, hard to figure out the gods were. Very distant, full of anger. There was no love, true love, in any of the pagan gods. They weren't near you. The only way you get them near is by making some kind of a sacrifice, sometimes of a child or a daughter or some other such thing, and they really couldn't be near. Now, the God of the Bible is very different than that. That's what we're hopefully going to see this morning. What we're going to look at these two aspects of God this morning, and you will see in this that the God that's presented in the Scriptures, the true God of heaven, is very different than those pagan gods that, are all, that, that have been worshipped by people for a long time in years. Francis Schaeffer, who was, uh, as far as I remember, an American philosopher, but he lived most of his life in Switzerland, and taught over there, in some of the universities in Switzerland, trying to teach young intellectuals, young people in Europe about the true God. A great scholar, a great thinker, and if you have a chance to read any of his books, Francis Schaeffer, he's dead now, uh, try to read those. One is called The God Who Is Near. Another one, He Is There and He Is Not Silent, Escape From Reason. There's just a bunch of those books like that that are wonderful to read. They're not easy. They're, they're not, you know, something you just pick up, read a few pages, throw it down. You're going to have to think through them. But he presented this kind of chart uh, in, in one of his books or lectures. This is my version of it. And I would call it an illustration of the transcendence of God. What the Bible says about God is this. There's God. And then there's a big gap in the universe. And then there's everything else. There's a gap between God that's uncrossable, unfathomable. We can't even perceive the distance of this gap. The depth of it between God and the angels, man, and animals. There's this huge gap. Because God alone is holy. This is what it means by holiness, partly. That God is completely separate and distinct. Some of the... uh, Philosophers in the 1900s called this the other. That he is the other, not us. He's other than us. And so to bridge this gap between the other and us was the big problem. And the Bible obviously presents God in this fashion. This was really how the, sometimes the pagans viewed their God, just simply not knowable. As I mentioned before, when you come to Acts chapter 17, you come to uh, Paul mentioning there that the pagans had a statue built to the unknown God. This is what they were talking about that there was a God out there the pagans thought that was unknowable, couldn't be accessed at all. But they built an altar to him. God is so different. And then you have, after you have the gap of God, you have this great gap, then you have the created beings, I'll use a generic term like angels, which would include cherubim and seraphim, and uh, if there are other creatures in the heavenly places, uh, I don't know what they are, and we don't know, we, and we know almost nothing about the cherubim and seraphim. Whatever you say about them, people have all these images and pictures of cherubim and seraphim, we know almost nothing about them. A couple of verses in the Bible, but they are mighty creatures. They're greater even, I think, than the ordinary angels. Among the angels, you have a hierarchy. There are strong angels, weak angels. There's the archangel. You have this hierarchy among these created beings. But they're all less than God. All greater than us, but all much less than God. And then from this, as we'll see in a moment, God said he made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. But then to man, he says... I give you dominion over the animals and the fish of the sea and the birds there and all the other animals. I give you dominion over them. So you have this order of created beings that God made with God alone on the other side of this gap between true deity and everything else. And then you have another picture in the Bible. Uh, if I can get it to come up. <coughs> of... Eminence, you have God, you have the angels, you have man, and they all share something together. They all share consciousness, things, aspects like God. You, you could even put, a, I should have made another chart in the middle here, between God, uh, uh, well, uh, maybe the chart is here. You have God, angels, and man. That, that, and the, one of the characteristics about angels and men that they share with God is they have a sense of right or wrong. And animal, angels and men know right and wrong. They do wrong, but they know right and right wrong. And they become morally responsible for their actions. They have consciousness. It's in a different way than just the plain animals. And so the Bible pictures a great gap between God and angels and men. And then the other animals. This gap is not respected today. On the other side of the chart, I don't think that gap between man and angels and God is respected. We disrespect that gap, and man tries to become God. Man wants to be his own God because they disrespect the gap. On the other side of the chart, we disrespect the gap between man and animals, and we think that man is an animal or animals are men. We can't get it straight. Are men animals or are animals like men? Which is it? Because we know they're different. We can see that with our own eyes. Humans beings from the time we even know what a human being is go back in history doing their painting on walls and caves. They know that the animals out there are not like them. The Bible is clear about this the first couple chapters. Adam looked at the other animals and there's nothing here for me. And the Bible paints it that way. But this gap between men and animals is a huge gap. We keep thinking we're gonna find some companion. Maybe this year it's the blue whale, or then it's an elephant, and it used to be dolphins, and and maybe it was chimpanzees, and maybe it's the bonobo monkey. We we always have candidates out there in the secular world for this replacement. And I'll tell you why that is. That's another whole lecture, as it were. When you take it, an eraser and you erase that word God and angels from the top. When you erase God and angels from the top of this chart, all that's left are man and animals. Now there's some serious competition as to who's going to be who. Okay. But if you have the scriptures telling you what the order is, showing you that order, things become a lot better and more sensible and more reflective of what really is. But this concept between the transcendence of God or this difference, transcendence or otherness of God and the imminence or nearness of God to us it is always been an area that needs an examination. And I'll tell you this as far as the real world. A low concept of God uh, always produces ill effects in human society and among humans. When humans devalue the concept of the divine or what God is like or who God is, it creates serious problems. And that's where, that's where you and I are living. We're living in a world we don't even know the difference between men and women and children. We don't even know the difference of some basic fundamental things. We struggle with identity. Why are we having all these troubles with identity today? It's because once you erase God from the picture, we don't know who we are. We can't figure it out. And we're struggling with this kind of thing. It's been going on for a generation or two and getting much worse. But what happens to people who are religious is once you make God just like you, and you have a low concept of God—that he's just as spiteful and whimsical as you, as we are—that he, uh, we can call him Daddy O if you want to—then it takes away all religious awe and worship, and the the, the exalt becomes the exaltation of personal. Human preferences, that's what worship becomes. Human preferences, what I like, and and this goes for societal issues like my preferred pronouns and all the other things. Our human preferences get notched up real high in the world and they become the most important thing. It reflects itself in the way that churches operate and how they conduct themselves in the presence of God as they worship what their worship is about. It's never, what does the Bible say I should do to worship God? It's, well, I like this. I like that. That's how we worship God. What, we like it, so we're going to do it. We don't care if the Lord says, remember me by taking fruit of the vine and the bread. I want cheeseburgers. So we do cheeseburgers. And that's because we have a low view of God. People with a high view of God's sovereignty and His holiness would never think of such a thing. They would seek to find out what God said, what He wants, and give Him what He wants, not that what they prefer. And so I don't care whether you're, you, you are part of some church in some rural county in Tennessee. Not to pick on Tennessee. We could just as well pick on Arkansas or Kentucky or somewhere. But but anyway, I'm not even mentioning Kansas. <laughs> we could just as well do that. You, I don't care if you're in a church in that, in that place, in a small church. If... If you are only doing what you prefer to worship God, you're missing something about the nature of God. Or you can go to the biggest cathedral you can find somewhere. And just because it's a big cathedral that points its ceiling up to heaven doesn't mean it's not operating by the principle that human preferences get first choice. Or that God's not in control. So that's a fundamental error that people make, the exaltation of human principles. And what it ends up doing is creating vain worship from self-confident worshipers. It's empty worship from people who are too confident of themselves. They come before God like that Pharisee in the scriptures who came in uh, and, and looked at God and said God I'm thankful I'm not like that guy over there that you made me like I am I'm like that guy over there I fast twice in a the week they started listing all the things that they do all the things they've done for God and they're a self-confident worshiper because they have a low view of who God is whereas the other man came in the publican who everybody despised he wouldn't even lift his eyes up and he smote his breast and said God be merciful to me a sinner that's one of Jesus' important stories that he told to illustrate something of the different kinds of worshipers who come. This man had a high view of God, who asked God to forgive him because he knew he was unholy. When Peter was on the boat with Jesus, (laughs) and Jesus helped him catch the fish out of nowhere, Peter fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him, Lord, depart from me, for I am unclean. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. You know, you see this reaction throughout the Bible. There's two or three instances in the Old Testament in particular. When, now Moses walked up on God with a burning bush and didn't know it was God. He didn't recognize God at first in that burning bush. And God said, take off your feet. Take off the shoes from your feet because you're on holy ground. But then you have Isaiah, who in a vision comes into the presence of God, and he falls down as one dead. God had to revive him, as it were over in the book of John and the book of Revelation. Jesus the, the same reaction to coming into God's presence. When humans come in God's presence, they often just fall down as if they're dead because and, and you know what we find in the Bible, they never really come into God's presence. They're only getting a glimpse of the train of his garments, some little outside vision of what God really like, and that's enough to cause them to fall down as if they're dead and beg God to go away. See, we use the word awesome for things. Wow, I got an awesome new computer. Baby, this lasagna is awesome. But well, awesome, what does it mean? Awesome, the word all means fear. Something that's awesome is full of fear, cause, causes you to be full of fear. So it was used of God. And the Bible says God's awesome. Well, we think about, oh, God's pretty cool. He's awesome, man. No, awesome means that He strikes fear into the heart of those who know Him yeah. and see Him. Because of his nature, he's so far beyond us. And so we better think twice about our empty worship that we offer up to God from a bunch of self-confident worshipers who are pretty sure of themselves in their standing before God. I fast twice in the week and I do this and I do that. Be careful. Amen. You are walking in very dangerous territory. It will never lead you any place good. Now, I'm not saying we have to come before. The Bible does say we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. I understand that. But that's boldness in Christ, not boldness because of what we are. And then something else that a low concept of God produces is an emphasis on, in, uh, on external things rather than internal things. Because we think we can somehow please this God who's not really taken to be taken seriously just by ch- chanting some chants or saying a few memorized prayers or something else we can do just to get him, get him off our back for the week. Worship becomes about getting rid of God, keeping me in his corner for a while. Then we can go about our business here. Or what it produces most fundamentally is a life without fundamental meaning. That's what it produces. This is what we're witnessing around us, and it's sad. I may sound angry at our culture and people. I'm not really angry. I'm more hurt and afraid. For them because of what they miss without jesus christ because to live a life with a low content of god in the end produces a whole bunch of individual human lives that don't have any real meaning because if there is no god human life is nothing it's worthless I don't care how many homeless people you feed. You and all those homeless people and all the food every atom of the earth is going to pass out of existence or pass into nothingness. A cold death and that will be the end of that. None of it makes any difference. I don't care how many good deeds you think you're doing. How many activist causes you get involved in. If there's no God, there's no such thing as good or evil. Amen. None of it makes any difference in the end. We're all headed toward a cold death. That's it. You're no different than a slime on your shower wall or, or whatever. You're no different than that. And I have never found a person who can tell me why that's not true, as smart as they are. That if there is no God, then why are you worrying about anything? I remember having a debate with an atheist Man. up in, uh, up in I- Indiana. And, uh, or was that Champaign, Illinois? I don't remember, but I was a moderator for the debate. And this fellow was a member of Madeline Murray O'Hare's atheist society. Remember, that, remember her? She's been, since been killed. This was back in the 1980s. And uh, this fellow before the debate, he was a youngish fellow. He was over there snuggling with his girlfriend and, you know, obviously they liked each other, and giving each other high fives because he was going to clean up the floor with these stupid Christians. You know, and all that kind of stuff. So during the debate I had my partner when he was spoke, I said, ask him if he loves his girlfriend over there. Maybe it's his wife. Ask him if he loves her. What? Ask him if he loves her. See what he says. Give give him an answer. Because if he does, I want him to define, I want him to tell me if there's no God, what could that possibly mean? Is he in love with a chemical reaction? Because if there's no God, all she is is a chemical reaction. A group of sick cells and symbols that got here accidentally. You mean you love, eternally love, the spiritual quality of love, a chemical reaction? But now, if she, if there is a God, then she's a human being made in God's image. Now, and love is real. Love is something that's actually actually tangible because God is love. Now I can understand you love your girlfriend. Makes sense. It makes you responsible for how you treat her, but it makes sense. Well, we never got a satisfactory answer to that. You know, the gravest question before any of us is always God Himself. He is. That's the one that we have to consider. And and so uh, people over time, historically, have never been able to rise above their concept of God. No culture rises above the concept it has of its gods, whether it's Greece or Rome or medieval Europe or the United States of America. We can't get higher than what we think our God is. This is why we some, some people, even the founders of our country can produce noble documents with ideas that will stand the test of time about the nature of human beings and the rights of man because their concept of God was high. And therefore they said men have, because of that concept of God that they had, inalienable rights that cannot be violated, should not be violated because of who they are. Other cultures basically say, The chairman of the party is the boss, do whatever he says because they don't have a high concept of God. They can't rise above it morally. See, one thing about our country, as good and bad as it is sometimes, is that our documents based on the Bible are capable of showing us that we're wrong. That's one of the best things about them, that they've shown us over time our failures to live up to them. So I'm not giving just an absolute praise here. I'm saying the documents themselves, because they're based on God, it's God's nature. Show us this. And we have failed as a nation many times. And in the future, when we all go forward, we're going to see whether we fa- how we're we going to know we failed. Because we're called back to our concept of God as the creator of man. All men are created equal, which is the founding statement of this country. And we've, we fail at that some, uh, often, but we're called back to it. Because we have a high view of God. In those. And when we lose that, when, that's, when those documents are thrown aside, when the Bible is thrown aside, when that concept of man is thrown aside, and if you believe in evolution as to how man got here, you show me how you can believe that all men are created equal. Because some came from this bunch of monkeys, some came from that bunch of monkeys. They all got together and made it with nose. Denosovians or Neanderthals that were all mixed together. We don't have one set of parents. We didn't all get here the same. We're not equal. This is where evolution takes you. Amen. And so we move toward our image of God. And man tends toward nothingness without God. No, one has come up here yet, but he, he, he tends toward just going away. Disappearing. I really think this is, to some degree, sadly enough, where many, many young people are headed. What the problem here is why suicide is so high, why they spend the whole time locked up in the room looking at screens, why they can't have real relationships and friendships, and on and on the list goes why they don't seem to want to be able to be employed or can even be employed, care at all about any of those things. It's because they're tending toward nothingness. Because God's been removed from them. Not their fault. They grew up in a world where God doesn't mean much to most people that they know. Where God's being derided because of uh, hypocritical religious leaders and whatnot. But they're tending toward nothing. It's, it's not good. It's sad. It's a sad kind of life. In Japan, uh, they just don't marry. They don't even have sex outside of marriage. They just stay by themselves and have sex with with robots and tend toward toward nothingness. Where do you think, as far as human race is concerned, that when huge percentages of our young people turn out to be gay and lesbian, where will this go? What direction is this going? Toward something or toward nothing? Where is it going? You see what I'm talking about? This is just one thing. I'm not trying to harp on that. I just think it's a symptom of a society or, and people thinking this way. And so we can denigrate religion all you want to, and religion has plenty of things that could be faulted for. Human religion does. But let's just realize what the Bible says about God's transcendence and then glorify him. Look at, I, I could spend, uh, our time is gone. Oh, my goodness. I'm on slide, slide 6 of 17. This isn't going to work. Okay. I just looked at the numbers. Now, we could stand up here for another half an hour, 45 minutes, easily, and I could read you uh, all these scriptures about the glory of God, what the Bible says about God's glory. I can talk about it, but I can't talk about it well, but what God says about who He is. In Isaiah 46, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, he says. God's going to do what he wants to do. And then you have this verse over in Psalm 35. By the word, well, by the word, hang on. i got to go back. Sorry. Spinning beach ball of death again. In verse 6 of Psalm 35, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. There's the word again. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. These nations plot out what this commission, this human rights commission, this uh, United Nations thing is going to do, what the CDC, what the, all, who is going to do. We plot out all these things because we're so smart. And God's going to bring it all to nothing when he chooses to. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Jehovah, the Lord, the people that he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. And from the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel says in, in the middle of, well, this is actually Nebuchadnezzar speaking after he's been chastised for the, in, in Daniel chapter 4, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Men can't say that. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now we could read, as I say, a half an hour more of verses just like that in the Bible that we never spend much time on. And we med- can meditate on each of these phrases. But But I want to jump to something else just for a moment. I know we didn't haven't taken the time we should on this. I got out of place. And, and um, lest I get daggers from you and from your eyes by saying we're going to preach a sermon on this, I mean a series of lessons on this, we're not going to do that. Just give me a second, and let me run over here to the other side of this. When we think about God's transcendence then, we should glorify him. But then when we think about his eminence, who he really is as far as we're concerned, then we ought to also give him glory and realize how much he is. Hang on one second here. This is about to change, and we're going to jump to slide Hm, 12. Sorry. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Won't do anything. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, there's a, I was going to read this to you, that maybe it's coming up here. He talks about the fact that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And because of his death, because of who he was, he was crowned with glory and honor that he might taste of death for every man. And it says that for him for whom are all things, it was fitting, and by whom are all things to bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here we see Jesus now. And I'm going to get you into the imminence of God, his closeness to you. This passage begins to talk about that. Here's God himself sent himself, his son. Made a little lower than the angels because he said in the, in the book of Hebrews, he made a body for this Jesus. And he said he is going to try to bring many sons to glory. For both, he goes on to say in verse 11 of these people that he's trying to save, you, you and me, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now we talk about brethren and kin, but We, we don't have the same feeling, I don't think, as people of previous generations do about that. We, I have well over a thousand friends on Facebook. Does that word friends deserve an italics air quotes around it? A thousand friends on Facebook? Actually, I've got 5,000 friends in real life. But, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. We use this word friends easily, brothers. Jesus, God's using this word. And in, in, in Bible times, this was a serious concept, to be brother I told you about me and my brothers. We were young, th- the four of us. We stood out there. We wanted to be like it was on TV. And we took a little knife and we cut, we cut our, our wrists, you know, let it bleed, and we put our wrists together and became blood brothers. Y'all look. You mean you boys never did this? You haven't lived till you become blood brothers in real life. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be blood brothers. We even let one of the kids and the would become a blood brother. I'm, that was probably a mistake. But he said, I will declare your name to my brethren. He tells to God, he says, I'm going to declare your name, God, to my brethren, Jesus says. And in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, He might destroy him who had the power of death. He said, you and I, you humans, share in flesh and blood with each other. That's the thing you have in common. He means being human. And he says, I am sharing in the same thing. Before I came to the earth, Christ says I didn't have a body. I was a spirit. God's a spirit. But God gave me a body and put me on the earth, born of a woman, so I could become a brother to the men who I say Share in flesh and blood. Is this the transcendence of God or the imminence of God? This is God's closeness. He can only do this because he's transcended. And then he says, I love this verse, verse 16. For indeed, he does not give help to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. You know, we had that chart in the beginning, and our time is gone, but we had that chart in the beginning. God, angels, men, and animals. Angels and men are moral creatures. We have a sense of right or wrong, and are held accountable for right or wrong. And there were two kinds of beings in the universe that sinned against God. I don't believe animals sinned against God, as we would normally think of that. But angels and men did. And the Bible says that the angels who sinned against God, He cast down into pits of darkness, to in chains to await the judgment. There is not one hint or breath of any forgiveness, any grace, any mercy shown to any angel who sinned against him. Oh, he lets them have some freedom while the world stands. We have Satan and his demons. But cast them down to judgment. And that's what this verse is talking about. But to men, the seed of Abraham, who will follow Abraham in faith, to them he gives aid. There it is. God prefers men who have faith over angels, higher creatures, better creatures, who rebelled against him. And so he says he himself suffered being tempted, in verse 18, like us, in a body, in a human body. And he's able to aid those who are tempted. And so then you have this statement in the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Eminence or transcendence? There he is. He comes and eats with us. If you open the door. If you open the door. He doesn't even push the door in. God could kick the door in if he wanted to. And some religions have God kicking the door in and making you obey him through the Holy Spirit. No. That's not how God does it. And that's why Jesus says back when he was on the earth, another verse that I love so much, and you do too, I'm sure. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And there's the beauty of it that where I am, you may be also. We're just creatures lower than the angels, close to the animals, and God lets us come and dine with Him and invites us to be with Him forever in a place He built for us. The God that we worship as Christians is not like the gods of the pagans, the Hindus, or whoever else it is. Not even Allah. This is a different kind of God, and the Bible tells me who He is truly. So let's think correctly and rightly about God. And, And as we close this morning... Uh, we're going to sing a song to encourage you to obey the gospel of Christ. I can't remember the number now, Gary, and it will come up here. Uh, Number 425? 125. I should have known. Number 125. Do you know my Jesus? And as we sing this song, we offer you an opportunity to obey the gospel of Christ. Perhaps you need to be baptized into Him. Repent of your sins. and and to be washed in his blood and become a Christian today and begin that walk to to a journey to where Jesus is waiting for you. Or maybe this morning you've sinned against him and you've taken lightly what he says. We'll pray with you, and God will forgive. You can get back on the right track. You come down here to the front row if that is your desire, and we'll help you. Let's stand and sing.